0: Turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, that is page 823 in the black Bibles in the seats around you. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verses 10 to 14, that's the section of Scripture that we're going to focus most of our attention on. But Matthew 18 is a long teaching block if you have those Bibles that take the words of Jesus and put them in red letters. This whole chapter is red letter. This is all Jesus speaking uh, pretty much through the whole chapter. There's five big teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew, so it's one of the more better organized books in the Bible. It's very clear how Matthew has organized this book, and so there's big teaching sections like if you've ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first big teaching block from Jesus. And then there's the Sermon on the Mission, and it's where he's sending out the disciples, and that's in Matthew chapter 10. It's a big teaching block. And then the third big teaching block is Matthew chapter 13, a whole bunch of parables. So if you go Matthews 5 through 7, Matthew 10, and Matthew 13, that's the first three big teaching blocks we've covered, and we're now on number four. And because of the love of the Jewish Bible and the Torah, there's going to be one more. There's five teachings of Jesus as if this is now the new Moses, the new Torah, the new Word of God. Um, so we're in the fourth one. And this fourth one, if you were to describe what it's about, I think it's a lot about how to do community and life together as a church. That'd I mean, be one way to summarize the whole chapter is about community and life together in the church. So here's my question I want to throw out there right now that's kind of a bit of a, a struggle that I would like to see some resolution through our text. And here's the question as I was looking at the whole chapter and what's come before us and what's coming after us in last week and next week's message. How can the church become a Christian community that is serious about fighting our sin collectively, together? How can we do that and at the same time not look down on one another? Because if you start fighting sin, and not just your own sin, but our sin, and caring about the sins of your brothers and sisters, which you should, come next week, and we're going to have a whole text about what to do when somebody sins against you, and how we should deal with sin in the community. And then come two weeks from now, and you'll hear another sermon about how to forgive each other. So this is about how communities deal with sin in part. That's what this chapter addresses. But how do you do that? How do you think seriously about sin? Think about last week's message or look at the passage just before this. Do not cause someone to stumble in their faith or, as the translation says here, sin. Don't let that happen. It would be better for you to take a giant millstone, big, huge rock, tie it to your neck, and jump and drown in the water. That would be better than causing a Christian in the church to sin. Serious talk about sin in the opening part of this chapter. It would be better for you to cut off a hand, gouge out an eye, or cut off your foot. The things you do with your hands, the path you're walking with your life, and how you see the world with your eyes. It's a total perspective of, man, you might as well just get rid of all those different things if you're going to cause Christians to sin. So now we get to our text. I think it gives us an insight on how the church can become serious about fighting sin and serious about seeking out those who are straying away from the church, but do so without looking down on them, which is not an easy thing to do. So let's read the passage, and let's consider how this works. Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The big idea of the message, hopefully one takeaway sentence, answering the question right from the start, only by the power of the gospel can we fight our sin together and not look down at one another. It will only be if we grasp and know and live out of the gospel. If you're new to church, the gospel is a word that summarizes the good news. The word gospel means good news, and it's a word that's used throughout the Bible to summarize the good news of what God has done to rescue sinners. In a nutshell, that's what we mean by gospel. So the power of a message of a God who's rescuing sinners, that has power in it. And if we believe it, and we let it change our hearts, and we live out of that reality, then we can fight sin together. And then we can do it without looking down on one another. Here's the outline of the message. Three points about the gospel. Three statements. The gospel, it promotes the weak. The gospel, it pursues the weak. The gospel prizes the weak. Let's take them one at a time. Promotes the weak, pursues the weak, prizes the weak. First, the gospel promotes the weak. It gives the weak a promotion. Look at verse 11 again. Or sorry, that's 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So the first command we get from Jesus in this section is do not despise a little one. Let's break down that phrase. Do not despise a little one. Do not despise. That word literally just means to look down on somebody. Like you break down the word, it's two parts and it's to look down. So despising is to look down on someone. That's why I keep using that phrase throughout the message. How do we not look down or despise others in the church? And the phrase little ones... If you go back to verses five and six, if you look your eyes up, you will see that Jesus was just asked about what a great person is in the kingdom or who is the greatest in the kingdom and he redefines it by putting a child in their midst and then look at verses five and six. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for them, and and as we read, have a great millstone fastened around their neck and be thrown in the sea. Jesus uses a child as a literal and figurative illustration for what greatness is like, and notice from here on out this repetition of little ones. He says it in verse 6, where he says, don't cause the little ones, and then he defines what little ones mean, those who believe in me. So he goes from child, like an actual seven years or younger child, to then broaden his point to all Christians who believe in Jesus, are little ones. And then he uses that language again, we see in verse 10 of our text, and so obviously he is talking about more than just little children, although it includes little children. It's children plus the children of God, the family of faith. Christians, those who believe the gospel and have their lives shaped by it. So that's what he says. Don't look down on Christians. Don't look down on believers. The church should be a place where there's equal standing before God, not, well, He's really holy She's really holy. Now, that might be true in our everyday lives where we're in different places, but the way we look at each other, there should be inequality. An Anybody look around the world and think, we've got some problems with equality as humanity. You know, like we're not doing good at being equal and treating each other with respect and dignity and that there's a lot of divisiveness in the world. So may- maybe we need this text. Maybe we need to understand what this means. When Jesus says, Do not despise one of these little ones, he means to include weak things, vulnerable people, vulnerable children, of course, as we just saw in the passage previously. But it should also include those who are weak because of other things, maybe of a disability, or being chronically sick, or being elderly, or being infirm, or being a refugee, or being in many cultures a woman or being somebody who is on the scrap heap of the world that everybody thinks is worthless. It includes the dirty beggar that we passed by on the streets. It includes the girl at the shop that you were tempted to be rude about or talked behind her back. It includes the old lady pushing a supermarket trolley down the street with all of her belongings piled high because she's homeless. It includes the teenager who drifted off into drugs because they didn't have any jobs, and now they're killing themselves with heroin. It includes weak people. Do not look down upon them, Jesus says. Why? Why should I not look down on them? I'm obviously better than them. Stronger, better looking, smarter, have a better job, nicer house. Why would I look down on somebody like that? It's my natural impulse to do that. Why would I not? Answer, Jesus, for. Anytime you see a word for, sometimes you can just switch it to because. Why should I not do that? Because I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. How cool is that? How about that for a reason why you should not look down on each other? You're not going to find that anywhere except the Bible. You're not going to find that in any self-help book. You're not going to find that in any sort of book about bringing people together. For they have angels that are looking at the face of the Father in heaven. Now, a lot of you might be thinking, what does that even mean? And that's a good question. It genuinely is a good question. Their angel. Well, at minimum we can say that Christians have. In the heavenly realm, they have representatives. They have some sort of spiritual connection with the angelic beings. That much, I think, is clear. Now, this is a text that if you've ever heard the phrase, my guardian angel, this would be one of the passages people use to support the idea that every individual person has one particular angel, and it's their guardian angel. Is that what this text is saying? Maybe. That's my answer. Maybe. Because it's just not that clear one way or another. Now, when you think about a guardian angel, you'd think about an angel that's protecting you on earth. Typically, that's the context I feel like I hear guardian angels. Any head nods would be like, yeah, that's kind of how we hear about guardian angels. So, what are these angels doing that Jesus is talking about? Protecting people on earth? Well, no. I mean, that's a very different concept altogether. These angels are looking at the face of the Father. And so then you got to ask, what's the significance of that? Maybe if you're familiar with the Bible, a passage, a story comes to mind, Isaiah 6, where you've got these, not angels, but these heavenly creatures and they've got six wings. Angels, by the way, are never described as as having wings or halos or a bunch of other things that we think about in the Bible. They're pretty much, as we can tell, just kind of human-looking creatures when they at least appear on the earth. What they're like in the heavenlies, who knows? Again, I haven't been to heaven, so can't tell you there. But here's what we can say. They don't have wings. They don't have halos. So in Isaiah 6, when it talks about the seraphim, it's a different creature altogether an angelic being. In fact, seraphim comes from the root word for like a serpent or a a snake or something. That's the Hebrew word for a seraphim. And um, we see these creatures in Genesis chapter three when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and these seraphim have these giant swords and it's blocking the entrance to the Garden of Eden. When Isaiah has a vision in the heavenly place, he sees these creatures covering their face. Anyone remember this? Isaiah chapter six. And then covering their feet with their giant, massive wings. And I say they're giant because it says the voice of these creatures was shaking the temple. And if you're Isaiah and you've seen the temple before, temple's big or small? It's, it's big. Giant columns, huge fortress-type building. And if you're shaking something that's just like one of the biggest buildings, I mean, just imagine saying, yeah, it shook the downtown of Chicago. You'd be like, whoa. Whoa from some speaking. So that's these creatures, and they're hiding their faces as massive and as strong and as powerful as they are. They're hiding from the glory of the Lord. That's Isaiah 6. What are these angels doing? Not hiding. Right in front of the Father. Their faces are right there. And so these little ones that Jesus is referring to. Christians, we have friends in high places. We have advocates and representatives. Isn't it interesting how so much of what makes you powerful or great or successful in this world is whether or not you know somebody, who your family and friends are? How many times does our world get it upside down and messed up that the lower qualified people get the promotion or job or part or something just because they knew the boss or they knew the director, or they knew the so-and-so, and and they got it. Because it all matters who you know. And Jesus is saying, little ones, they know somebody. They've got somebody that's representing them in the heavenlies and defending them. I would think of it best probably less than a guardian angel, but more like a courtroom scene, because often the Jewish Christian concept of what's going on in the heavens is often compared to a courtroom scene where God is the great judge, and then there's all these counselors before him, and then there's these accusers, like a prosecuting accuser, and that's the Satan figure that you find in like Job 1 or in other places. And so they're making these accusations, but then you've got these others that are then defending and pleading and interceding, and the chief of all of them is Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity that we find in other scripture passage, but I think you should think about these angels as like the defense attorney for the church. Whether there's one for each person or one or for each region or whatever, that's again where I'm like, I don't know, above my pay grade. <laughs> but the gospel message is promoting the weak by saying, hey, you need to know who they know. You need to know who's supporting them up in the heavens right now. You need to know that God thinks highly of these little ones by allowing them into his presence and they can stare at his face and don't need to be covered. This is promoting the weak. Jesus is telling us that the little ones have probably the most powerful friends that any of us could have. It's interesting that these angels always see the face of the father but we're the ones who hide our faces from the weak things of the world. But the angels do not hide their faces in the presence of God. There's some kind of paradox here, I think. We're ashamed of the weak, but God isn't. And so therefore, as a church, let's think about our community. Will Embassy Church be a place where it is not important who you are or where you come from or where you work Or what's in your bank account? Or what kind of stuff you wear? Or what kind of car you drive? Is that the kind of church we are? Are we really believing the gospel? That the gospel takes weak sinners and promotes them and gives them the status of being seated with Christ and having angels represent us? I mean, this is exalted language about weak people like us. Do we believe this, or do we look down on people because they didn't get as good of test scores as we did in school? This is how we measure each other, and we're always, I think, constantly battling in our hearts against the temptation to size each other up. Guys, this is what we do a lot. I think the ladies probably do it too, just because we're all sinners, but as a guy, I know that we're just constantly sizing each other up, whether it's on the basketball court, or in the weight room, or what sort of job we have. The church is no place for this. It is not a place for us to talk like this, look like this, or treat each other like this. Do you look down at people by scanning the room after church and having a conversation with somebody and wondering, yeah, this conversation's not going anywhere. Uh, Who else could I talk to? Think about it. That's probably you despising a little one that's right in front of you. Angels in heaven are standing before the Father representing them, and you're like, yeah, I'm done with you. This is what we do, and this should not be. And so Jesus commands us, realize what the gospel does to flip upside down your value system so that you do not despise a single member of his church. He values the church so, so tenderly and sweetly. You aren't better than the person next to you. Oh, maybe in worldly standards, but when we know the gospel, we know that we're sinners, saved by grace, and there was nothing we could have done to accomplish it. The only reason we would ever look down on somebody is because of some sort of pity, worldly accomplishment. Well, I got accepted into this school. Well, uh, I've got this kind of job, or I've got these sort of accolades. People that don't have what you have, you are tempted to look down on them and it shows you what you're truly valuing. And so we have to think about what you take pride and joy in. The gospel should crush it and sever it at its root because it says the weak sheep who have gone astray have been rescued by Christ and they are highly exalted and promoted in his heaven. That's point number one. The gospel promotes the weak little ones. Number two, the gospel pursues the weak. The gospel pursues the weak. This is verse 12. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? The good shepherd in this parable story goes in search of the one who went astray. Sometimes this stray word has been translated misled, but I think the best way to read it is exactly as you see it here in your Bible, is somebody who has gone astray. You should not despise the little ones, even the little ones who in their folly and foolishness and sin go astray. Don't even despise them because the gospel pursues weak running away rebellious children the sheep will not find their way home by themselves which is why they need Christ they need the work of the holy spirit to help them find their way home a pastor who was a former what a farmer shepherd owner of sheep So he used to work out in the sheep fields and then became a pastor as he was teaching on this concept. He said, too often people think of it as like, well, I had a dog one time and it ran away and we went and found it. And then when we found it, we were so excited because it was my dear pet. And then we walked home and it was happy to like, yay, we got our dog back. That's the, the wrong picture. He said that when a shepherd loses a sheep, it's because the sheep's an idiot. Like, sheep are dumb, and they don't get it, and they're stubborn, and they're rebellious, and that the shepherd has to go find the sheep. When he find the sheep, basically tie them up and hold them over their shoulders and bring them back because they would not just be like, oh, come on, doggy." That would not do that sort of thing. This would not be the wagging the tail. I'm so happy to see you. If anything, it's like they're running away from you and you've got to tackle them to the ground, tie them by their feet, and bring them back to the penfold. That's what sheep are like. The sheep do not find their way home on their own and nor is the gospel a picture of, well, Jesus went half the way and then I brought myself back. The gospel is a picture of Jesus sought us prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But praise God that Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Hallelujah. Jesus found us, got us, and saved us. And that is true not just when that happened the first time. That's true every time we stray. He pursues us. He sustains us. He's coming after us. The work of the Spirit is continually coming and pleading and drawing you back to Jesus. So we need to understand the nature of the gospel is to pursue sinners, whether they have never come to Jesus in the first place or they came to the pen and they were with the church and then they started wandering away. The church and the Christ-like response would be to leave the 99 on the hill or the mountain and go find the lost sheep. Now, I I was studying this text, and I was thinking what to make of that phrase, on the mountains. Was it random? Was it significant? Was it pointing back to something in the Old Testament, this or that? And here's what I've concluded. You can agree to disagree. It's not a major point, but I think it's highlighting the fact that the sheep are with the shepherd and They're kind of moving or grazing. They're not like secure. It's not like they could just call in. I was reading one commentator that said, well, when he leaves the 99, I mean, he could have just asked a buddy like, hey, can you watch these sheep for me? And then um, I'm gonna go find the other sheep. I feel like the whole point of the story kind of falls apart to some degree if you don't realize that he's so valuing the lost sheep that when you're thinking about your calculations, the eternal calculations of like, okay, is this worth it or not? Jesus is like, yes it's worth it. I value the lost sheep, but what about the ninety-nine? I'm going after the lost sheep. And so we need to understand the risk or the cost of him leaving the ninety-nine on the mountain, and it's seeming like the way this story is told, like, that seems like a bad idea. That seems like you should just see. well, dumb sheep, at least I got ninety-nine. If I come back and I say, hey, nine out of a hundred, I'll take it. I mean, how many of you would take nine out of a hundred on your tests? Or 99 out of hundred on your golf swing being 99 out of hundred hole-in-ones? How many times would you, baseball players, would you like, 99 out of hundred, I, I hit the ball and I get it in play. I mean, those are good scores. Jesus said, not good enough. Not good enough for me. I will not leave even one little sheep behind. He does not just walk away from them. Oh, how that must lead us to meditate. Do this today. Not just now, but throughout the day, throughout the week. Meditate on the value of just one sheep to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There was a story I came across as I was reading about this text, and it was a story about uh, some communists, and uh, I want to just say it was China or whatever, but some communists that were really struggling with the teachings of Jesus, and in particular, this teaching. They said that they felt like this was bad economics. Like, why would Jesus, like this very point of, why would he leave the 99 and go after the one? That just doesn't seem wise. And In the book I was reading, the author said that um, the conversation with these communists, they were having this, and they said, by going after the one, Jesus gave the 99 security by knowing that they could say to themselves, Wow, if he so loves that one sheep, that if I ever get lost, I know he will come after me. A failure to go after the one would leave the same 99 with the ultimate insecurity of realizing, well, if I get lost, he's just going to leave me and I'll die. Yes, there's a risk involved in him leaving the 99, But the undeserved, costly love of this story is that Jesus is bringing assurance to both the one that was lost and the 99 that are found. Friend, if you are not straying away from the gospel and you see any effort of the church or the Spirit going after and pursuing See the love of Christ working through that and be encouraged that that's what would happen if you were to be straying from the fold. In the summer of 1942, in Egypt, there were a group of Presbyterian missionaries that were from the U.S., and they had to evacuate because of what was going on in World War II. And there was an approaching German army, so they needed to flee. They got into a boat. They sailed around Africa and across the Atlantic to North America. And one night in the middle of the Atlantic, a guy in the crew, so one of the, just the sailor, boater, deck men, whatever they call those guys, he got drunk and he fell overboard into the water at night. They were within range of several different German submarines, who were observing these things, and so this was extremely dangerous, and the chance of finding the sailor in the extreme pitch black was small, and any search then would bring a lot of attention by putting lights on the water, and so this was a difficult decision for the captain. True story, by the way. The captain made the courageous and risky decision to say, we're turning around, and they used spotlights and steered in circles, hoping through the dead of the night they would spot the tiny speck of a bobbing head in the waves. They circled and circled for an hour, shouting and scanning the ocean. To their great joy, the man was spotted, retrieved, and saved. This is an example of what Jesus is telling us here, of leaving the 99 and pursuing the lost sheep, even at the cost or the risk of others maybe being harmed. Friends, the gospel runs after weak sheep. Will we be shepherd-like and run after those who have strayed? I know this might seem like I'm just inserting in something that has been impressed upon me, but I feel like this flows very naturally from this text. How is this not a great argument for church membership? I mean, think about it. How do you know who the 99 or the 100 are if you don't have some definition of who's sheep and who's not sheep? Who are we supposed to have God be searching out through either our efforts or through the Spirit and our prayer and saying, God, search after the sheep. Seek them out. They have strayed. Like, how do we apply this text other than just knowing, okay, Jesus does this. But he really does this through his church. And he does this through his church when churches understand who their sheep are. So whether you have the process that we do or a process of some other churches, we need some sort of definition of, are you of this sheepfold or are you not? And that's what we call church membership. And why we have church membership is precisely so that we can be like Jesus here, so that we can be like the great shepherd, so that we can model him. This is not just a story for you to know, okay, we're all to be sheep and we're just dumb and idiots. No, the gospel transforms us into shepherds. We then can all be priest-like shepherds that care for one another and fight sin together. That's why you need to come back next week and see that Jesus in the very next story is going to say, now here's what you need to do when you guys sin against each other in the church. And how are we going to do that? If we have a heart of compassion and love to be like Christ and have our hearts sink, not look down on them, but with love, want to see them come back to the church. So, this is why, A, I'd encourage you that if you're not a member of this church, join either this one or one like it. B, use our church directory to pray for the members and the regular attenders of our church on a regular basis so you can get a general sense of who's here. And then when you come on a Sunday, realize, I haven't seen this person in a while. Then pray that they'd come back. And then if you know them, Or you're asking questions to me or the elders, and collectively we do this as a church, as a corporate body. This is not just the elders, but we should take the lead in this for sure. We should go after straying sheep. And my hope and prayer is that we will, and that not be, we're looking down on you. We're better. We're going to church more than you are. That's not the spirit at all. The gospel humbles us. We're not looking down. We're looking out like Christ does, and we want to see them rescued. Why? Third, final point, the gospel prizes the weak, values the weak. How can we say that we love somebody and not go after them if they're running away from Jesus? Like, does that make any sense? Look at the last two verses of our text. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. Notice first in our text if he finds the sheep meaning there will be efforts that we make as a church that we tried. We tried to rescue lost sheep that have gone astray and we cannot change their minds or hearts. This is the work of God and it's they're personally responsible, God's involved, but we need to do everything we can on our end. But there's an if. If you find the sheep When we find the sheep, though, we should see the joy, the prizing over all the other 99 sheep that never went astray. There is great joy in this passage for the lost sheep that was found. I was thinking about that story I read to you about the boat, and the story doesn't go on to say what happened next, but let's imagine it. They find the man, and there's got to be great joy that the captain would take that much time and effort and energy to try and find this drunken sailor, you know? Like, if anything, it'd be like, well, he's worthless. He's just a drunk. Let's leave him. No, we're not. The captain loved and cared about him, and so there was joy in finding the person. There had to have been just great rejoicing and commemorating like, oh, wow, we're so glad you're back. That was a close one. Whoa, I'm so glad you're alive. Like that, imagine those conversations. But then imagine also the conversations of, man, that captain, he's something. I mean, what courage, what boldness, what love. The joy here should be the joy of the shepherd and the joy of the lost sheep. Don't miss out on both of those joys. The joy of finding the sheep, what we would think of as worthless, oh, the drunken sailor in the water, let's just leave him, serves him right. No, that's not the way God views it. It's not the way the captain viewed it. It's not the way we should view it. There is joy in finding a human who is lost and strayed and drowning and saying, let's rescue them from danger. And then there is joy in realizing, man, we've got a really good captain. We have an amazing shepherd. One of the things that you need to start doing inventory on is what you take joy in. Because what you value will be determined by what you take delight and joy in. And you need to realize that what makes Jesus so valuable is that as a shepherd, he takes joy in what you and I would think is worthless. Jesus takes joy in finding a lost sheep and leaving the 99 and being like, wow, that is greater than anything else. Sheep, that's what Jesus takes joy in? The sheep? Why? And how can the gospel allow you and I to be a community that fights for sin together and with each other and go after lost sheep and not look down on each other Well, when you realize that the shepherd became a sheep. I mean, think about how all through this service we kept seeing in the Bible, Old and New Testament, and those are just a few texts, the good shepherd. But the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep by becoming a sheep. Do you remember John the Baptist's words? John chapter 1. Behold the sheep, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One of my favorite sheep texts is what we're about to celebrate now, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of a lamb dying and the blood of the lamb covering over the doorposts. And in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think all four Gospels, when they tell the story of the Lord's Supper, they have... The details of the disciples, the upper room, there's the bread, there's the cup. But if you've been reading your Old Testament, you know anything about Jewish traditions, you know that the centerpiece of that meal is the the sheep, the lamb at the center of the feast. But you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What do you not hear at that table? Bread. Bread wine but no sheep that's because the sheep wasn't on the table the sheep was sitting at the table the great shepherd of the sheep became a sheep know his great love by seeing him sacrifice his blood for you by becoming one of us so the shepherd became a sheep so that you sheep could be rescued And that you then could be turned into a shepherd. And seek the lost and the strayed. May we do that by the Spirit's power. To the glory of Jesus' name. With all humility. And let's do it so that those would be rescued from their straying. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks and praise now for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us through Jesus, that Jesus is not going to give up on us. Thank you for the encouragement that we have been given in this text, that Christ is a pursuer, and he prizes us. And I pray, God, that there would be in encouraging warmth in our soul to know how much we are loved, how much we are valued, what our true position is in the heavens. And let that humble us and still be confident about who we are in Christ, who we are in this world. Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to fight our sin together, that when people in our church are astrayed And walking away from Christ, that we would pray earnestly and that we would run after them. And so give us the grace, God, to be able to do that as you have done it. So we ask, Father, for your spirit and his help. In Jesus' name, amen.